Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Geekery in General podcast. I am your host, Al. And for this episode, we are going to be talking about the geekiest of all geeky things, Star Trek. Now, unfortunately, this is a topic I have only a casual knowledge of. So to help me with this topic, I have a guest from the MetaTrek YouTube channel, Jeff. How are you doing this evening, Jeff? I'm great. Thank you for having me. How are you? You're welcome. Um, not too bad. Uh, as I was saying before we started recording, uh, recovering from a bit of a cold, but it's cold and flu season, so what are you going to do? Yeah, suffer through it. Yep. So to start, why don't you introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your YouTube channel. All right. Well, my name's Jeffrey, and my YouTube channel is MetaTrek. It is a channel dedicated to classic Star Trek, and mostly the original series and classic Star Trek movies with the original series cast. Uh, currently, though, I'm doing my first all-next-generation video, and that'll be up uh, within a couple days. But I go into deeper topics like symbolism. I do archetypal uh, analysis of characters, I, um, and I do talk about uh, myth and legend uh, as it relates to Star Trek as well. The, my most popular videos have been my my um, comparison videos that I do. They um, that's where I take a a movie and compare it to some of the original series episodes. Or uh, the most popular video that I've done is a comparison between one of the uh, classic Star Trek movies and a Next Generation episode, which I was really surprised uh, that uh, that one took off as well as it did because the movie wasn't one of the more popular ones, nor was the episode, but uh, I'm going to be going even deeper into the symbolism and character archetypes and mythology as I continue on the channel. That's cool. And it is interesting with podcasting and, you know, YouTube channel stuff. Sometimes you never know what's going to be your most popular episodes. Um, Cause one of, uh, for my podcast, the most downloaded episode I had was an interview I did with a friend of mine um, a couple months ago where he talked about his experiences at an archaeological field camp. Oh, wow. So that was, I was actually surprised to find that's been my most downloaded episode so far. It sounds interesting. I have to check that one out myself. Yep. So how did you get interested in Star Trek? I've actually been a lifelong fan of Star Trek. I... In fact, was so young when I saw the episodes the first time, I don't even remember seeing them for the first time. And I probably first start first saw it on Saturday morning. Uh, the animated series started right about the time that I was old enough to start watching TV. And probably we're, yeah, we're watching the original episodes by the time I was starting school. So... And it just uh, never went away. Just it's always felt like home. So, and and as I I actually warned forewarned Jeff about this before we started uh, when we were starting to get this set up. As I said, I only have a casual um, knowledge of Star Trek, so he can probably look forward to me asking a lot of dumb questions. Sure, and, I'd be happy to answer any of them <laughs> and all of them. <laughs> I I was never really as much too much of a Star Trek fan. When it comes to science fiction, I've always been more into Star Wars. Mm -hmm. However, I did have friends growing up who were interested in Star Trek. So sometimes when I was over at their house, they would have, you know, the Star Trek might appear on the TV. Mm -hmm. um, the one I remember most of is Next Generation. And I remember a little bit of Voyager. Those are the mm -hmm. only two that I ever really saw any regular episodes of. I mean, I've caught the occasional episode of a the original series when, of course, when it was in syndication. Uh -huh. um, and I do actually remember seeing the occasional episode of the animated series. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty obscure. So was it just that it, it never really caught your interest? Or what would what would you say? Mostly just never really caught my interest. Okay, I admit I've always been a little bit more into like the with Star Wars anyway, the more action-oriented approach they took. Mm -hmm. Because even though I'm not a hardcore Star Trek fan, I do know that it does tend to be very intellectual. Um, at least that's what I've heard. 
where a lot of the episodes do have, you know, deeper meanings. And uh, just watching some of your, your videos on YouTube, you know, I, I, I'm under that impression that, yeah, you can look at Star Trek episodes from being more than just a bunch of people flying around out in space. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times there's various scientific and social aspects to those episodes as well. And uh, I've heard some people refer to it, and I believe you were mentioning this too when we were setting up the episode, that it's almost like a modern mythology. Yes. So instead of telling stories about, you know, a God that defeated the chaos bringer and then created the world or uh, stories of, you know, the hero's journey, the heroic initiation as Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Campbell talked about. Instead, we talk about things like, you know, the symbolism of something in, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek and occasionally, and I I know you actually did an episode on this too, where you were talking about um, Kirk's glasses Oh yeah, and how you had your own, you know, your own ideas about, some of the symbolism of what that could mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of it, um, I think was put there intentionally. Some of it seems to be more of an emergent property, which I find to be more fascinating. Um, and, uh, star Wars was Joe's, uh, George Lucas's, uh, attempt to do a modern retelling of the hero's journey. And it was a very intentional. Um, what I've been finding in Star Trek seems to, like I said, be, seems to be more of an emergent uh, aspect to it. Where I actually have it on pretty good authority that they weren't intending to do a mythology, but uh, the uh, the creator Gene Roddenberry uh, had said that, but he said he was also glad to call it one. You know that he recognized in hindsight what it was, but hadn't been doing it intentionally. So it has a little different uh, spin on it, I think, uh, for because of that. This was a podcast I listened to several years ago, which unfortunately is no longer being produced. But one of the care, one of the hosts on that mentioned that Star Trek was originally pitched as uh, almost like a space Western. And yes. I don't know if that's okay. So that is, uh, that is true. Cause he was describing like to the executives that it should be seen as, you know, like a wagon train in space, except yep. of course, instead of a wagon train, there's a spaceship. And instead of the characters being, you know, cowboys and, you know, sheriffs and bounty hunters, they're the crew of this spaceship. Yeah. That, uh, wagon train to the stars uh, was a pretty clever way of uh, uh, getting the executives to kind of understand where it was coming from. I've never really watched Wagon Train, but my understanding is that it was an anthology series about pioneers going across the frontier. And that was the same idea as Star Trek. They, you know, he even called it uh, Space the Final Frontier. And he wanted it to be in his original pitch, he said, basically it's an anthology series set in a, uh, standardized location with consistent characters, but each episode would be a standalone story. And I think to some extent, each, each episode is almost kind of set in its own universe too. There's a lot of small inconsistencies between the episodes that almost make them, you know, unique to themselves. And, one thing I find interesting, too, is that the word Trek, if you look up, the, I looked up the etymology of that, uh, and it means that like an uh, an arduous journey, but it also has a connection to um, to a ox, uh, ox wagon or something. So it actually, the word Trek is etymologically connected to the wagon train concept, too, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, that does make sense. And when you look at you know, some of the episodes, at least the few I remember, uh, you know, wasn't unusual for them to go into these unexplored planets where you never always knew, they never always knew what was waiting for them. And I think um, Voyager was, you really saw that in Voyager because that was the one where this, I think the, sh- the the ship 
somehow got transported to the other side of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they were dealing with locations and people that and species that were not really known in the other part of the galaxy. Yes. And that was sort of a, um, I believe, more like an like uh, an odyssey uh, or based more like on the odyssey mm-hmm. where it was the journey home, where the original Star Trek was more like the uh, the Iliad or the the journey out going outward. So that okay. was they had were able to do sort of both halves of the of the whole journey. And they um I've only watched Voyager once, so I don't know a whole lot about it and it's been a number of years ago. I um mostly am familiar with the original series and the next generation. I've watched all of Deep Space Nine as well. The whole series through once, some of the seasons a couple t- uh, through a couple times, but um, that's sort of the black sheep of the family, so to say. Uh, yeah, I've along- always heard people. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say along with Enterprise, that was sort of another um, series that didn't. Uh, well, Deep Space Nine did really well, and it got more accolades as it went along, but uh, it's still. Sort of the oddball that it because it was set on a station instead of on a ship going through space. Yeah, one uh, friend of mine always said Deep Space Nine is basically Cheers in space. Changed my <laughs> mind. Yeah, they even have a character in there that uh, was named after a character from Cheers. The uh, character's name was Morn, and it was and he's named after Norm. It's just yeah. uh, Norm spelt backwards. <laughs> sort of a barfly. So over the years, we have seen Star Trek. It's uh, branched off into several movies, these different TV series. So it can't be argued that Star Trek has had a huge influence on popular culture as Mm -hmm. well as the fandom. With with Star Trek, now one of the big arguments I've always heard, and I don't know if this is more jokingly or if they still, people still argue about this, but the whole Trekker versus Trekkie. Sure. So I'm Some, not sure. Is there really a? Is that more of a joke among the fandom, or is it? Is that something that people actually do still argue about? Like, okay, if you if you fit this description, you're a trekker, and if you fit this, you're a trekkie. Yeah, I've always taken it kind of lightheartedly myself, but I know there are those who do take it pretty seriously, and it can uh, it it has, I guess, gotten pretty heated at times. Um. There was some, I think some people felt like it was a, it was a the difference between original series and next generation that original series fans were Trekkies and next generation were Trekkers. But I don't know if that's quite accurate. I think it has more to do with the fact that Trekkie was originally a um, sort of a, a slander kind of towards um, female Trek fans who were into Spock and Kirk. And, and it was, so it had that kind of uh, like a groupy okay. kind of vibe to it. And I think some of the, the Star Trek fans objected to that and wanted to uh, set themselves apart from that. And so Trekker was uh, what they came up with. However, Gene, going back to Gene Roddenberry, he, uh, in an interview, said it's Trekkie and I'm the creator of the show. So, you know, I have a, a right to say what I, you know, what, what they should be called. So he felt it was Trekkie, but people still go by either. I'd say I, I call myself more of a Trekkie than a Trekker too. One TV show where I've seen the term parodied. Have you ever seen the Netflix series, Black Mirror? Yes. The episode did. Nosedive, where the character is trying to get to a friend's wedding mm-hmm. and she doesn't, her car is like run out of, of energy. So she doesn't have a way to get there. And she hooks up with a bunch of people on their way to a convention for Sea of Tranquility, which mm-hmm. is essentially this kind of like Star Trek in this fictional universe. And the you know of course the people on the bus are all dressed in costume and they're trying to determine if she really is one of them or not and she's like 
I think she said, oh yeah, we're, uh, yeah, where I come, she called herself like a trank head or something. And they all kind of look at her. It's like, you're not a tranky. And it's, well, that's what they call it where I come <laughs> from. It's something like that. But um, yeah. And did she, wasn't there something where she was getting voted down or by the time she got there, she had like fallen out of favor with her friend that was having the wedding and, and she just kind of crashed it. And I remember that one. There was another yes. one too, where they actually did a parody of Star Trek where they had. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the USS McAllister or the yeah. USS Callister. That was mm -hmm. actually a really good episode too. Um, because in that particular episode, if, in case anyone hasn't seen it yet, it the the main character is or one of the main characters is a developer at a like a video game company where they do this like high tech online game and it has a sci fi theme. But since he's a fan of an old TV series called Space Fleet, which is or Starfleet or Space Fleet, but um, it is it's essentially supposed to be based on the original Star Trek. So he has his own private mod that he does where it allows him to go into the game and everything is done in that older style. And it's kind of nefarious because what he does is um he makes copies of people he either likes or doesn't like in the real world. And he puts those copies in, you know, in the game world so he can do whatever he wants with them. Yeah. Um, it's pretty creepy. Ill. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, that's a very good series. I Nosedive and USS Callister are two of my favorite episodes, though the season four finale was really good as well. I'm not sure what that was. Um uh the Black Museum. Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I and, do remember and, that. And one of the things I like about that episode is when they're in this museum, there's little hints every now and then that call back to the other episodes. Because mm -hmm. the all of the the series are intended to be in the same continuity. So I thought that was cool. It wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a series of just unrelated episodes and unrelated stories. Yeah. I think there were Easter eggs in a number of the other episodes too, that would reference earlier episodes. And yeah, I did want to say one other thing about that, the USS Callister, um, that was, I heard it was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a potential series of its own. Either that or people were hoping it would be developed into a series, which unfortunately never happened. But there were a couple of Easter eggs for the original series as well. The, there was a scene where the uh, one of the characters had her face uh, wiped off, basically, and mm -hmm. she was she couldn't breathe. And that was what had happened in an original episode, too, called Charlie X, which with a adolescent um, character who had godlike powers and he he erased a woman's face hmm. and that was a kind of an homage to that. Pretty cool to see. Now, another term that we see come from the Star Trek fandom and, and this one I know has been extremely divisive over the years because people still use it today and it's, it's almost always used in a negative light. And that is the term Mary Sue. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was actually coined back in 1973 by I think her name might have been Phyllis Smith or something like that. She had written a parody of Star Trek fan fiction. And it was fan fiction itself, of course. But the parody uh, had to do with these perfect female characters that were usually very young. And they were basically fans that were writing themselves into Star Trek. So... She did this parody of that, and that's what started the uh, the the name, and it's stuck ever since. And now it's used in a wider or wider range. So yeah, that's pretty. That was pretty cool. And there's a male equivalent as well. The term I've heard, Gary Stew. It's one of those terms. I I use it more lightheartingly, but I know there's people that just really take it seriously. Like I know Ray from. Uh, from the the Star Wars sequel trilogy, a lot of people referred to her as a Mary Sue, and yeah, yep. So, do you think that term has changed pop culture and fandom for ill, or do you think that it it is okay to use in a more lighthearted, humorous manner? I think it's okay to use. I think that it 
gives us um, something that we can use as a, you know, kind of a common lingo or slang that kind of defines or at least uh, allows us to talk about a certain type of character. And I don't, uh, I don't think I've ever actually used it myself, but I think that it, it, it gives definition and it's something, it's uh, something that people can, when they hear it, they know what you're talking about. I admit there are times I've called characters Mary Sue, but at least in my opinion, just because I perceive a character as being a Mary Sue doesn't always necessarily mean that it's a bad character. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can certainly understand where people are going, how when you have these characters that are overly idealized um, and, you know, as you were explaining, you know, they're 15 years old, but they're an expert in everything and they just earned their seventh. <laughs> PhD and they were just promoted to Admiral the, you know, the, and again, that's because as you were mentioning, that's what people were doing in these early Star Trek fanfics where they used it as a form of wish fulfillment. Yep. Yep. Which I think is a little different than like Ray from Star Wars, because it, I don't think that she was written by a female. So it wasn't that didn't have the same uh, origin. I think there was a, a different reason for her character to be the way it was uh, in comparison to the original context you know, of it being someone writing themselves into the fiction. Yeah. Now, with uh, speaking of Star Wars and different fandoms, unfortunately, there is a tendency for fandoms to become divided over certain things. Like, just to use Star Wars as, as an example, there are some people who think that only the stuff from before Disney acquired it is real Star Wars. And there's other people that think, okay, only the original trilogy and, you know, anything after Return of the Jedi isn't real Star Wars. And, you know, the sequel trilogy, again, that, of course, has been very divisive. In mm -hmm. the Transformers fandom, there's people who think that anything outside of the original cartoon from the 80s is is garbage. and in Dungeons and Dragons fandom, you know, again, we see that a lot where, you know, there's been people who are like, oh, you played that version of Dungeons and Dragons? You're not a real D&D &D fan. <laughs> yeah, and as a, as a big fan of second edition, I've, I've been accused of not being a real D&D &D fan because I like second edition. <laughs> so since I'm not really involved in the Star Trek fandom, just out of curiosity, is there that same level of division among Star Trek fans, because I know they, it seemed like they did try to reboot the series with those, the, the new movies. So is there yeah. a lot of division between people who, you know, think that the, the new movies are garbage. And I, I think they've also had a couple other uh, cartoons or stuff like, wasn't it um, lower decks? Yeah. That's a new, one of the new series. Yep. I've watched the first episode and that was as far as I got. Yeah. They, they I think it was something to do with uh, space zombies or something and lost my interest right away on that. That was actually supposed to, they had to consider that as a spinoff series back when the next generation was uh, in still in production. There was an episode called Lower Decks where they had junior officers on board the Enterprise that they focused on. But again, nothing ever came of it. And every time they do a new Star Trek, there's always that division in the fandom. It's, uh, I believe, even when the animated series was being produced or was going to be produced, there was backlash against that. That it, if it wasn't live action, it wasn't real Star Trek. And I think when the first movie came out, that might have been maybe the only time when there really wasn't that kind of division. I think everybody was. Ex, you know, excited about having something new, but with Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, people were up in arms about that and didn't feel that it was uh, good Star Trek or true Star Trek. It didn't meet some of the criteria. The next generation was very derisive. A lot of people and I have to say myself included, I think I was disappointed that they weren't bringing back the original cast, not realizing they couldn't. It wasn't 
economically feasible for them to do that. But that had a lot of diversion and division inside the fandom. People, um, it took them a while to get, uh, to get on board with it, but they finally did. I don't recall so much derision with uh, Deep Space Nine or Voyager, but I do know when they came out with the new movies back about uh, 13 years ago, there was a lot of derision over that. I didn't like the movies and still don't. And then all the new Star Trek series that have come out since then, like the last five years or so, again, a lot of derision. And I've tried to watch them. I think I gave Discovery and Picard both about five episodes and just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. And I haven't checked out Prodigy. I should. I haven't. Um, watched one episode of there, there's another series called Strange New Worlds, which uh, for a lot of people, that's probably the high mark of the new crop of Star Trek shows. I've seen the pilot, and that's as far as I got with that one so far, too. But you're right. Every every time something new comes out, there's derision in the fan base. When it comes to division in fan bases, I mean, I think sometimes it can be healthy if they're going to discuss it civilly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm one of the terms that gets thrown around in the Dungeons & Dragons community is the term edition warrior which I know I've talked with a friend of mine about this, where we have very different ideas, where in my opinion, okay, if someone says, I I hate all versions of D&D except this version, I don't necessarily think that's addition warring because, well, there's nothing that says you have to like every version of D&D to mm -hmm. be a D&D &D fan. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you get to the point where people are like, well, I only, you know, if you like this version of D and D, you know, you're you're dumb or you're not a real <laughs> D and D fan. In my opinion, that's when you start getting into the edition warring, where you insist that if you like something I don't, then again, that means you're not a true fan. Yeah, I think people who have that attitude are the dumb ones. Yeah, in my book, you know, it's I think everyone has a right to like what they want, you know, and carry their own head cannon around, you know, you can choose for yourself what you want to partake in and what you don't. So, um, even there's even derision between like star Wars and star Trek fans. And I have never been that kind of a, of a fan. I'm a fan of science fiction in general. So I felt like, a kid in a candy store growing up with all of the science fiction that were com was coming out at the time, you know, it, uh, felt very, very lucky to have all of it and enjoyed all of it very much. And my problem always comes down to storytelling. If I feel like uh, something is badly written, I can't get into it, you know? And for me, it doesn't have anything to do with the newness of something like with the, these new Star Trek shows coming out. I was really excited and very hopeful when I heard about them and couldn't wait to check them out and was very quickly disappointed. Just felt like they had the wrong people in charge. There have been some other really good additions to franchises that I've really enjoyed. I can't wait for the next season of The Mandalorian to come out. I've enjoyed that very much. In fact, in my <laughs> opinion, I think it's the best Star Wars since the original. And I also liked Rogue One um, very much. And as far as like uh, the Karate Kid, which I was never really a, a big fan of that. My wife is. But um, I watched him, but it was, you know, it was okay. I really like Cobra Kai. I think that's oh, yeah. really revitalized that. And it's uh, that and The Mandalorian. Those are like two great examples of how to do a reboot of of something the right way. And I, yeah, you know, I wish they would have done that with Star Trek. Yeah. Cause I, I have seen a few episodes of the Mandalorian and I, I enjoyed it. I also enjoyed Cobra Kai, a friend of mine also named Jeff, a few episodes. Well, actually this was a while ago, but as far as the, the, num the numeric episodes, it wasn't that long ago, but as far as time, it was 
we did an episode where we talked about the first three seasons of Cobra Kai because this was before four came out. Yeah, I, I like that one segment in there where it's um where they were looking for the. It's been a while since I've seen this series, so I can't remember the name of um Johnny's son, but uh, him and uh, Daniel were looking for him and. The, those couple episodes almost had like a buddy cop feel. Yeah. So I'd have to say that yeah. was my favorite. That was one of my favorite parts of the of the series. I really enjoyed that too. And I, I listen, like I said, I listened to the podcast, that podcast, and I really agreed with a lot of what you guys were saying about it. Uh, I think it was Jeff, maybe that was talking about the uh, fight scene in the school and how mm-hmm. it, it sort of went over the top, and you know, there were no no teachers to break it up. Those were exactly the same things i was thinking when i was watching it so yeah i I think both of us were in agreement on that one where yeah the where it did kind of it it got a little bit out of hand and a little too because i don't think a real fight in school would ever quite get that uh would ever quite go to that extent but yeah unfortunately i haven't had a chance to catch season four or five yet just because i've been so busy with other things and i know they've been out for a while so i gotta i gotta get back to binging those those shows. Sure. But when you do get to them, I'm sure you'll enjoy them. They're really good too. So back to the the topic of Star Wars, Star Trek. One of the terms we were mentioning before is that some people have referred to these as our modern mythologies. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as we when we were I introduced you, I mentioned you know you do your uh, you have your podcast, not podcast, your YouTube channel where you've done some various interpretation episodes. So one of them, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the one with Kirk as the king archetype? Okay. What got you into doing these episodes where you take a look at Star Trek characters or Star Trek episodes and try to compare them to, you know, ancient stories or these ancient archetypes that, you know, a lot of people don't even think about. Mm -hmm. So actually let's start. What is the king archetype for anyone who might not know what that is? Okay, this is based on a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by a psychoanalyst or analyst uh, by a psychoanalyst, Robert Moore, and a mythologist they teamed up and wrote this book. I thought it was a great book, and as I was reading it, I thought this these uh, archetypes seem like they map onto the Star Trek characters very well. And I wanted to explore that further. The book is based on Jungian archetypes, which I had already had a, a deep interest in. I've been interested in that in for probably 20 years at least. And I really felt that the, uh, the way they broke down the king archetype, where the king in his fullness would be a, uh, basically a well-balanced, rightful, ruler but that there this archetype has a bipolar shadow it has a tyrant and a weakling and i really felt that was explored in a particular star trek episode called the enemy within where kirk as the true king had been split basically into this bipolar shadow in the episode they call him good kirk and evil kirk which Pretty, ba- you know, it's a good basic way of, of dividing it. But I really felt that there was a deeper level to this episode that could be explored through this context, and so that was the basis for me doing that. They had an episode where Kirk is possessed by an alien entity called Sargon, and Sargon is actually mentioned in this book, the real Sargon from ancient. I think Sumer, he's the archetype for the um, emperor, basically. He was the world's first emperor, as far as we know. And so that was sort of a an episode where they have Kirk identifying with the true king and being found uh, worthy to carry that. And so I, I talked about that in the video as well. And if you look at Star Wars, are there any Star Wars characters that you think would uh, would fit into that king archetype? Yes. Probably Obi-Wan Kenobi 
would be the would fit the king archetype. I haven't really explored the king archetype with Star Wars too much. For me, Star Wars really maps onto the the Joseph Campbell archetypes really well because it was based on the hero's journey to begin with. I think Darth Vader would be a really good example of the the tyrannical king. And don't really see a character that would represent the weakling king too much, the passive king. Uh, Emperor would be probably a deeper version of the tyrannical king as well. And I should do a, I should do a study on that at some point. Yeah, because I, I agree with you when you say that Darth Vader could be a, an archetype like that for that. Because, yeah, definitely in most of the series, we see him as the tyrant, this, uh, you know, dark, brooding, evil uh, you know, character. And, mm-hmm. I mean, at the weakling, I could certainly see that with some of his younger, his younger years, maybe during the Padawan phase. Where sure. he was still, you know, he was kind of like he was. He was just learning the ways of the Force, and he was still learning to control not just this power that he was learning how to use, but to control his temper and his anger. That's a good point. Now, in the the book, they have two sets of archetypes. You have your uh, basically your adolescent set of archetypes that are uh, versions of the adult or the mature archetypes. So for the king, the adolescent version or the child version of that would be the the divine child. And he is divided into the uh, the grandstander, which would be the active version. The grandstander would be the, the version of the tyrant and the I, I think he's no I'm sorry that would be that's the warrior archetype the high chair tyrant is what they call the adolescent version of the tyrant and the other one is like the weakling prince I think is what they what they call the other one so Atticon it might qualify as a high chair tyrant when he was younger perhaps and probably the the weakling prince usually what happens is when you're under the influence of the shadow of any of these shadows you're expressing the bipolar aspect of them so you can be you're a tyrant but your tyrant is you're acting like a tyrant because you're trying to cover up the fact that you're actually a weakling and anybody that reminds you of the weakling part of yourself you act tyrannical towards so you can because you want to control that part of you, so you're projecting it onto them. So Anakin would probably um, would be expressing both aspects. I can definitely see that because I know psychologically speaking, some people like t- talk about how people who like bullies, you know, people who are deep down, they're not, they don't have much self confidence. So what they do is they try to bully or push around people they perceive as being weaker than them. And they try to project this tough guy image when deep down and, you know, just from my own life, I've had lots of experience with bullies. And one of the things I've always found out is generally the moment you stand up to them, though, you can knock them down like a house of cards. Exactly. Yep. I've had to deal with some of them, too. And it's amazing how uh, their disposition can change once you stand up to them. I think another character that is probably synonymous with Star Trek, especially for the older Star Trek fans, Mr. Spock. Oh, yeah. So if you had to put him into an archetype, what type of an archetype would you uh, put him in? I would put him into the magician archetype of all of all archetypes. Hmm. He manifests a lot of the qualities of the magician uh, in Star Trek terminology, the magician would be the scientist. Uh, so basically okay. our modern science is the, 
is our equivalent to magic. Even some of the, uh, let's see, even the writer uh, Arthur C. Clarke had, has a famous quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I like to take all of the qualifiers out of that statement and just say that uh, technology is magic. You know, so basically what it comes, what it, you boil it down to, the one is the equivalent to the other, only it's uh, based in a different kind of science. So, and Spock is a scientist. And also the uh, the third member of the triumvirate of, of the original Star Trek, Dr. McCoy, he's also a, uh, would be a magician as well. Only his it deals with medicine. He would be like the medicine man or the uh, or the shaman. But with Spock, not only is he the the magician, and there are some really, uh, really there's some really cool examples of how he ties into the magician in the original series, including one episode of the animated series when they go through the center of the galaxy into another dimension where magic acts like science, he's the first one to understand this and start using the magic. In fact, he even draws a pentagram on the floor in one of the rooms on the Enterprise and stands in it and uses his mind to move objects to show the others that they're in a magical realm. So he had a really good grasp on the idea that he's working with a form of magic. But yeah, he I've also... Always... Mm -hmm. Oh, quite Sorry. No, I can come back to this. I was just gonna, I was just gonna talk about how his character maps onto the hero's journey, probably better than any of the other characters in Star Trek. Yeah, it's because I was gonna say I, I love that quote from, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke about how advanced science and magic are indistinguishable from each other, and it is, it is certainly true if you think about it. Because, I mean, you look at. You know, you think how someone who grew up in earlier times before, you know, like before electricity was commonplace, like, you know, maybe a grandparent or great grandparent. And if they lived long enough to see things like the Internet and computers and, you know, it would almost seem magic, magical to them. And, you know, if you go back further, I mean, if you could go back to like the, you know, 15, 1600s and show them like an iPhone and. Hey, here's a magic, here's a box that lets me listen to music, watch moving pictures, take pictures and talk to people anywhere in the world. They might very well back then, they probably would have burned you at the stake or <laughs> hung you as a witch, but. Yep. Yep. Or even showing them like what a, tr you know, like a train would be, would be magical to them as well. Something moving without horses pulling it. Yeah, and I'm still amazed when I see – sometimes I'm still amazed when I see airplanes, and it's like, okay, how can something that big stay up in the sky? <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. I think about that too. I, I think what would ancient man think if they saw something like that traveling across the sky? You know, they would think it was a comet. You know, they, they'd leave a trail like a comet. They'd be probably frightened by it, I would imagine. So how would Spock fit into the archetype of the hero's journey? So of all the characters in the original Star Trek series, his character is shown at every critical stage of the, of the journey. There's the, the, uh, in Star Trek V, they, they show his birth. Uh, usually the hero's journey will, the full journey will start with the birth of the, of the child. Uh, a good example of that would be the uh, story of Christ, starting off with him in the manger. That's, he's, that maps onto the hero's journey as well. Then there's usually some incident that happens in adolescence that is of uh, import. Uh, with Spock, there's an animated episode where he has to go back to his childhood to save himself, basically. As a child, he dies in a rite of passage. And originally, he was supposed to have saved himself, but he went through the this time portal to another. He was in another world's past instead of going to his own past. And when he comes when he comes back, they realize 
that no one recognizes him except for Kirk. And so he has to go back and save himself. So at any rate, you've got that. And then you have the road of trials, which is essentially the five-year journey where he goes out with Kirk and he's having all these different experiences. For Spock, it seems like the the original series had a lot to do with him just having experiences and gaining knowledge of different types through mind melds and other uh, weird, weird events. And then he goes through a death and resurrection. And I would say he even goes through an ascension into another, uh, like almost like a heavenly realm or a, or a, um, another dimension of his own making, which I think is implicit in the end of the hero's journey. And that would be the new movies that they made back about, you know, starting 13 years ago where he ascends to this other, basically they call it another timeline, but it's really another universe that was created by him going through uh, like a wormhole. So, and it's a lot more detailed than that as well, but he essentially maps on to the, the hero's journey quite well. And there, um, another aspect of it is that he's a half human, half would have been called a, uh, a divine being in Star Trek. The divine beings have been demoted to aliens. So he has a, an alien father instead of a heavenly father, but he's, you know, has an earth mother. And so you have that aspect of it as well, where you've got a child who's half divine, half human. You know, that, those are very good points because uh, when you mentioned that, I started to think about that because um, see, he dies in Wrath of Khan, the second mm. one, correct? Yep. Because I remember that, and I, then I remember the search for Spock, where he he's brought back to life, and that reminded me of the you know the archetype from the hero's journey, where the hero has to sometimes does go through the death and resurrection. Sometimes it's a physical sense. Sometimes it's more of a metaphorical sense or, yep. you know, they've got the journey into the underworld. So that's actually a really good point. Have you done an episode on that on your uh, YouTube channel yet? I have not. I have. I will <laughs> at some point, but I'm waiting for that one uh, because there's, there's a lot more to it. You, you mentioned the uh, going into the underworld and what's really interesting. And this is something I haven't even brought up at all on the channel. But I've mapped the original Star Trek characters onto the different figures in mythology. And the one that it maps onto probably the best is Greek mythology, where you have Kirk, of course, would be the equivalent to Zeus. <laughs> and with the woman, something probably with more than just the, the, the womanizing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. In many, many ways. Yeah, he acts as the high god or the sky god. And interestingly enough, this took me a little bit of time to to get this right, which um, I was really glad that I went through the process that I did to get to where I where I arrived at, which is that Dr. McCoy seems to map very well onto Hades. He's the god of the underworld. In fact, his name McCoy actually means literally means son of the god of the underworld. Because Mac oh. being son of and the Koi being version of a Gaelic word I can't even say that is <laughs> was the Gaelic god of the underworld, and there's all sorts of other things that line up when you uh, when you finally connect McCoy to Hades. But when Spock dies, he goes into McCoy, and McCoy carries him. There's a scene where Spock does a mind meld with McCoy. And after he dies, that mind meld essentially sets McCoy up to receive Spock's Katra. So when Spock dies, he go, his ascent into the underworld is literally going into McCoy, which is kind of interesting because in Greek mythology, the underworld and the god of the underworld have the same name. They're both Hades. Spock dies, he descends into the underworld and then is resurrected. There's a whole scene where they have to extract 
Spock out of McCoy in Star Trek three at the end. Now, one of the things I remember about Spock that you mentioned, of course, him being half human and half Vulcan, I seem to recall there is something in Star Trek lore, at least in the original series, that with Vulcans, after a, a Vulcan woman gives birth, she always dies. So one of the things that Spock always felt guilty about is the fact that his mother was still alive. Now, just out of, I don't know if I'm misremembering something, or is, is that still considered Star Trek canon, or is that something they that they retconned? Must have been something that was retconned maybe from one of the newer series. Let's see, Star Trek Discovery has a lot to do with Spock's before, you know, otherwise unknown sister, who's like a main character. She's sort of a Mary Sue character as well. <laughs> um, they may have mentioned it there. I'm not sure. I've, like I said, I only watched the beginning of that. But as far as the original series goes, that was never a part of the, the lore there. And, okay. But so I'm thinking you're probably thinking of something that has been uh, retconned. Yeah, maybe it was in one of the movies. And as I mentioned, it's entirely possible I was that I'm I'm misremembering something because I, since I, I'm not a huge fan of Star Trek and I'm only mm -hmm. that casual have that casual knowledge. But one thing that I think is interesting about the birth of Spock that hasn't really been brought up in canon, but if you think about the logistics of him having parents from two different worlds, that it he would have essentially have been have had a virgin birth. Hmm. We can't even reproduce with like the our closest primate relatives, let alone something that, you know, spawned from another ocean on another world. So that's another aspect of the hero's journey is the immaculate uh uh immaculate conception. Conception, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so I think that's implicit in his birth, although it was never made explicit in any of the stories. I do think that in Star Trek Enterprise there was a interracial birth between a human and a Vulcan too. And I believe that they did go into more of how that they had to do this in a test tube to get it to work. I think this was in Voyager, but because I, as I recall, there was a Vulcan character in there. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I seem to remember some, some episode where they were putting him in the holodeck because I, I guess when Vulcan males reach a certain age, they start to get like some, like some hormonal change or something and where I'm they need far, to seek out, yeah, where they need to seek out a female Vulcan. And since they're out in who knows where the best they could do was put him in the hollow deck to, you know, help him, uh, trying to think of the best way to say it, but to help him cool his jets or <laughs> get, get, yep. get over whatever it was he needed to get over. Yeah. I do remember that too. And maybe that, uh, what you're remembering came from, that episode perhaps or something from Voyager that even I've only seen the series once. So I don't recall all of the Vulcan lore that was produced during that series. And then of course, enterprise had a Vulcan character in it too. And they actually go back to Vulcan. And this was set a hundred years before the original series. So um, they did add some lore in uh, enterprise as well. When we talk about Vulcans, other than the pointed ears, of course, one of the things people think about is the Vulcan neck pinch, which, if my memory serves me correctly, the original idea was that Spock was supposed to knock out someone with like a karate chop. But Leonard Nimoy suggested that since he's supposed to be this more logical uh, character, that he should use like a nerve pinch or something. And that's how they came up with the Vulcan neck pinch. One of my all-time favorite movies, Spaceballs, mm -hmm. there's a classic scene where the, the character Lone Star tries to give a guard a neck pinch, and he's like, the guy's like, what are you doing? Uh, the Vulcan neck pinch? No, no, it's too, you got it too high, stupid. It's down where the shoulder meets the neck. You mean right <laughs> here? Yeah. That he <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that movie is is something I, I really like. Uh, uh, what is it? Dark Helmet? Is that his name? Yep. Yep. And uh how he tells them to he tells them to go to plaid, I think. Uh yeah. to go to plaid, <laughs> isn't it? Or, or they go to 
They um, go to a ludicrous speed. Ludicrous speed, and it turns some yeah, it turns to plaid. And he says, "Full stop," and no one's done full stop at ludicrous speed. <laughs> and he ends up smashing his helmet. Another one of my favorite scenes from that movie is uh, the one where they meet yogurt, and he's like, "You know, <laughs> merchandising. That's what makes the money. You know, space balls, the flamethrower. The kids love this one." <laughs> doesn't doesn't there a scene where he's he's beamed somewhere and they beam him b- backwards and he sees how biggest butt is and how's no one ever <laughs> yeah. told me yeah and it's like they beam him back and he's like i'm walking this time and it's like he's just in the next room <laughs> it is cool to see how star trek has made its way into pop culture where mm-hmm. there's little references like we talked about in space balls galaxy quest i know is supposed to be a, a like a star trek parody and the, the uss callister we talked about is an homage to the original series So one of the questions I've seen people throw around every now and then, in a battle between a Star Destroyer or the Starship Enterprise, who do you think would come out on top on that one? Yeah, the Star Destroyer is pretty big. Yeah, I'd say probably the Star Destroyer would take out the See, that would be my bet, too. I've heard people argue the other way, too. Yeah, something like, since um, the Star Trek has teleporters, they could always teleport people in. And have them set up bombs and blow it from within. So, uh, you know, yeah. whether that, I don't know, but I always thought that was a, that's an interesting little question that people like to argue or like who would win the Death Star or a Borg cube. Sure. Well, that would be, that could be, that could go a different way. But you got to keep in mind too that the Star Destroyer, it is built as a warship and the Enterprise was built as a ship of exploration. And Discovery was a more of a science ship in space, uh, pioneers, uh, all of those sort of things. It had weapons, but they were only used in defense, not in conquest. So it um, it wasn't designed to to be a warship. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you know, of course, with Star Destroyers, they're carrying Tie Fighters and you know other weapons of war. Whereas the, I mean, I know the the. The Enterprise usually would carry shuttles to like go down to a planet, but I don't mm-hmm. know if they were armed and they they probably didn't look like no. they were built for battle. No, not at all. Yeah, completely different in that way. Uh, in back in the 1960s, they they had no budget to show a bunch of little ships, so they had to. In fact, that's why they had the transporter was so they didn't have to use the shuttlecraft even. I think it was originally meant to allow them so they didn't have to to land the Enterprise because the shuttle wasn't even built until about halfway through the first season. Hmm. But yeah, they didn't have any really any small size ships to speak of at all, like Star Wars. Well, Star Wars is mostly based around the Tie Fighters and the X-wing fighters and the Y-wing fighters. Yeah, so that's what, as I was saying before. I always liked the the more action oriented approach of start of star Wars over, over star Trek. But what would you say is probably your favorite episode of star Trek? It's always hard to pick a favorite, but I often will default to mirror mirror, which is a second season episode, mostly based in a alternate universe where the Federation is more of an evil imperialistic empire other than a peaceful United Nations type of government. And the Enterprise is more like a pirate ship, or you could even say it's more like, like the regular series or the regular universe Klingons. And I was always taken by that. I find alternate uh, realities to be interesting. And that was the original series episode of, uh, they had a couple others where they'd go to alternate universes, but that was really the the primo episode where they're in an alternate universe for most of the episode. And you get to see variations of some of the characters, like four of the characters are from the prime universe. And then you have three or four of the others that are um, the mirror universe versions of the characters. So, it was kind of neat to see how how the evil Spock acted, which I find it to be kind of interesting. A lot of people feel that he he was really evil, but if you really pay attention to the character and how things unfold, 
was probably the most like the actual Spock more than the other characters that were the evil versions. Uh, Sulu and Chekhov were the, uh, the two others. Alternate universes are fascinating, and I, I know it's always fun to see how different uh, fictions explore that topic. Like one I always remember that kind of traumatized me from my childhood. There was an episode of G.I. Joe where three characters got teleported to this alternate universe where Cobra was in control of everything. And they actually came across three corpses that were actually them. Oh, I wow. know Transformers, uh, they have a series called Shattered Glass where the Autobots are evil, the Decepticons are the good guys. And, uh, you know, so that one I've heard, I haven't read any of the literature. I've just read synopsis of it. And that one mm -hmm. actually seems pretty interesting. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, comic books, they explore alternate universes all the time. For me, I'd have to say my favorite, there's one I remember from The Next Generation mm -hmm. where Picard is injured and he's in this like half a lie. He's like between life and death. And we hear that they mentioned in this episode that he had an artificial heart because when he was still a cadet, he got involved in a bar fight and he got stabbed to the chest. So while he's in this life, not quite dead, but not quite alive state, he gets a visit from Q mm -hmm. and he starts to wonder what would happen if he never actually, if things went differently at that day and if he never got injured. So Q shows it to him and he finds out in the, since he didn't get injured, he becomes afraid to take chances and he always plays it safe. And in this time, instead of being a captain, he's, you know, just serves under, you know, Worf as a, is like just a regular science guy. So he's just kind of another, he would be like the equivalent, I guess, of a red shirt. Yes. Yeah. The episode so is called Tapestry. Yep. I think it was a six season episode. Yeah. And, and that's when he decides that he, you know, to let it, he, he should let it happen because that injury actually made him what he was. So at the end of the episode, they leave it open-ended for you to decide whether Picard actually did receive a visit from Q or if it was more just like a hallucination. And I mean, I'd have to say of the characters I'm familiar with, Q is probably my favorite. I've always found him kind of like an Odin or a Zeus figure mm -hmm. in that he would sometimes take steps to, ma to manipulate events. So well, who would you say is probably your favorite Star Trek character? Again, hard to choose, but I've always had a real fondness for Dr. McCoy of all characters. I just find him to be, a, a very fascinating character because he's so unique and unusual in his disposition. And beyond that, it would be a, a toss up between Kirk and Spock as well. I'd probably ultimately would probably have to say Spock, but again, Dr. McCoy has always kind of been my default just because I find him to be so interesting. Next generation Q, by the way, is the up, uh, the video that I mentioned that I'm working on right now is actually about Q. So, yeah, I'll have to check that one out when it goes up because I said he's always been one of my favorite. I have to say, Q and Picard are probably my favorite Star Trek characters. And at least the episodes I've seen him in, I, I've always liked it how Q kind of takes a, he's kind of a smart ass at times. And mm -hmm. Data could get, could get, um, could get interesting sometimes. I remember there was this one where they gave him like, I think it was in one of the next generation movies where they gave him like an emotion circuit or something. And he, uh, what was his name? Brent Spanner. The, the guy who, who portrayed him, he was like improvise. He actually improvised some dialogue and, uh, I guess Jonathan Franks was like in the back trying not to laugh. So yeah, he, data was another one of my favorite characters. So yes. Very popular. He was the Spock character of the next generation, uh, which they played in the, uh, he was basically the inverse of Spock, where Spock had emotions, but denied them and repressed them. Data doesn't have emotions and he's trying to experience them. I'm going to be getting a lot more into the relationship between Picard and Q. I feel they're much they're much more connected than is generally realized. And this is going to be on an archetypal level. And that's going to be 
something I'm not going to explore in in the video I'm doing now. This is sort of just a setup for the deeper videos I'm going to do later. So I'm going to do like a series of videos on this. And I can't wait to get into the deeper aspects of it. Well, sounds interesting. I certainly look forward to seeing that one. And so we talked about your YouTube channel, Metatrek. Do you have any other uh, information you want to give out? Like if you're on Instagram or Twitter, or if people want to follow you on any social media sites? I do have an Instagram channel. It's Metatrek Videos. And that is tied in with my YouTube channel. So if you, if you want to check me out on Instagram, it's Metatrek Videos. The only other one I'm really focused on right now is the uh, YouTube channel. I also I do have a Patreon channel as well. If you anybody who'd like to support me on Patreon, that would be awesome. You get uh, exclusive videos on that. And I do go deeper on Patreon with the topics than I do on YouTube. So you get other perks as well. So it's yeah, YouTube, Patreon, and Instagram. Well, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. So I'd like to thank you for joining us, Jeffrey. It was you know, certainly fun talking to you, even though, as I said, I'm not, not really that familiar with the Star Trek uh, universe. It was still fun to talk. And um, I especially enjoyed when you, you discussed some of the things about how these mythological archetypes can be applied to this, you know, this modern science fiction series. Mm -hmm. Of any of the modern genres, science fiction seems to carry that the most. And yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. I've had a great time. Welcome. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs> live long and prosper. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at poigamestudio at gmail.com.